Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, find the Gospel of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2. Last week, we started this new series called That You May Believe. And as you're looking for John, chapter 2, I want to read you the central passage for this series from John, chapter 20. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so this series is going to lead us up to and prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday. And so for the next 10 weeks, we're going to be looking at 10 signs or 10 works of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John. And as we said last week, these, these 10 signs serve as indicators that we may know and that we may believe either for the very first time or that we keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here in the second chapter of John, we have the account of the very first sign or miracle of Jesus as recorded by John. And let's look at it together, beginning in verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, some scholars argue that the reason John mentions in verse 1 that the wedding at Cana was held on the third day was very, for, for a very specific reason. They, they say that that is a reference to Christ's resurrection on the third day following his crucifixion. Now, of course, in, the, in this timeline, Jesus' resurrection had not taken place yet. But remember, John writes this book some 40 or 50 years after the resurrection. So in that sense, scholars agree that this could be the first hint of what this first sign that we're going to read about, this first miracle of Jesus represents. That it was a, and you need to remember this, a miracle of transformation, a miracle of conversion, a miracle of bringing life out of that which is lifeless, okay? And here it is, the first sign recorded by John in John chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? I don't know if he said it that way. That's just how I hear it in my head. I can't help every time I read it to read it like that. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells, do whatever he tells you. Now, obviously the occasion here is a wedding, but we have to remember this is a first century Jewish wedding in the East, okay, which is very different from the weddings that you and I are used to attending uh, in modern day here in the West, okay? In, in the weddings that we typically uh, attend, there, there is one person in that ceremony who outshines everyone else, right? There, there's one person who is the center of attention on that day, one person who stands in the spotlight. And when she enters into the room, dressed in all her glory, everyone literally stands to their feet. All eyes are locked on her in recognition of the bride. Everyone sees 
and watches as she walks down the aisle. Now the groom is there, but the best thing he can do is just stay out of the way, right? (laughs) He is there to receive. He is there waiting on the bride because she is the main focus for that day. Now in first century Jewish weddings, it's a little different. It was a little different. Actually, the groom was the prominent, the more prominent figure. The, The groom was the one who was in more of the spotlight, the one who outshined all others. The bride is there, but she is to receive the bridegroom. That, that imagery is so important for us as the church. Okay? It reminds us that the church, followers of Jesus Christ, we are the bride. That's why the Bible calls us the bride of Christ. And as the bride, we wait with great anticipation For the appearing of our great and glorious bridegroom, the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's important imagery for us to understand as we look at this miracle. Now, another thing about first century Jewish weddings is that they lasted a long time. You know, my my wedding ceremony was about 45 minutes or an hour long, and I still have friends to this day that tell me that's the longest ceremony they've ever been to in their life. But a Jewish ceremony, wedding ceremony, celebration could last for two or three days, some as long as a week. And all the relatives from both sides of the family would be invited along with friends and neighbors to celebrate this this wedding. And so this this would have been most likely the setting for the wedding at Cana, okay? And I wanna give you a, an illustration here before we get into the, to the miracle, okay? I, I have three kids, they're all teenagers right now, so that means they eat everything in sight. It means we can't keep enough groceries in the house, right? And so from time to time, one of my kids will invite a friend over, okay? This happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my 13-year-old invited a buddy over to spend the night. And so in preparation of that 24-hour period where we would have a guest, I went to the grocery store, and this is what I bought. Three box, I'm not exaggerating, three boxes of Little Debbie's, a family pack of Oreos, two half gallons of ice cream, a two liter bottle of Mountain Dew, and, and a bag of chips, okay, barbecue, okay? And between my son and his friend that he invited over, they just about wiped out all of that in one 24 hour period, okay? So you can imagine how much food and drink would be required to sustain a two-day, a three-day, a five-day wedding feast for what possibly could have been hundreds of guests. And whatever that amount is, it, it, it is more than what was actually on hand at the wedding because one of the worst things that could have happened actually happened, they ran out of wine. And it's interesting how Mary, the mother of Jesus, responds to that situation. She simply says, Jesus, they have no wine. She doesn't ask him to do anything specific. She doesn't ask him to perform a miracle or schedule a Walmart pickup. She simply says, they have no wine. As if to say, Jesus, we need your help. Now, we can only assume that by this time, Mary's expectation of who her son truly is has been awakened inside of her. Perhaps she had been told of what happened in Judea when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and how the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. 
Perhaps she perfectly remembered the promise from, given to her from the angel that her son would be the long-awaited Messiah of the world. Perhaps because of those promises and because of those expectations, she knew if anyone could do anything in this particular situation, it would be her son. And at first glance, it seems that the way Jesus answers his mother is the same way my teenage kids answer me and my wife sometimes when we ask them to help around the house. What does this have to do with me? What does this dirty laundry have to do with me? What does this dirty bathroom have to do with me? Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And at first it sounds like his, his answer could be a little disrespectful or rude, but really it wasn't at all. When he asked, what does this have to do to me? That was a Hebrew way of asking or saying, you, you don't understand. You see, Jesus was not saying, you know, I'm not the guy. This is not my problem. What he was most likely saying in this situation is what I do or what you want me to do will not accomplish what you are hoping. What, what I will do here or what you wish that I would do will not persuade these people nor this nation that I am the Messiah. In other words, Jesus could perform miracles and he did. But miracles alone would not be enough. Miracles alone would not be enough to convince the people that Jesus was the Savior. And that was true. Many, many people witnessed miracles. As you read the Gospels, they, they witnessed miracle after miracle, sign after sign, and wonder after wonder performed by Jesus, yet they did not believe. And John wrote about that a little bit later in John 12. He said, but despite all the miraculous signs that Jesus had done, most, not some, not a few, most of the people did not believe in him. You see, sometimes God's will for our life includes checking the box that says none of the above. In a sense, that's what Jesus was saying to Mary. Perhaps she had in her own mind what he should do to fix the situation. Right? Moms are good at that, right? Telling their kids what they need to do to fix the situation. But Jesus says, none of the above, because my hour has not yet come. Now, another hour is coming and will be an hour when I fulfill the will of my father. I will reveal who I truly am. But now is not that hour. Now is not that time. And Mary seems to be satisfied with his response. She simply says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And here is what Jesus did. Verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. I want you to notice the simplicity of this account. How easily, how quietly, how effortlessly this miracle occurred. Jesus simply says, fill these jars with water. And the servants fill them to the brim, probably about 20, 30 gallons of water each. 
And after the jars were filled, Jesus simply says, now draw some out and take it to the master. That was it. No prayer, no loud command, no smoke, no fire from heaven. Jesus didn't even touch the water. He didn't even taste it to see if it had truly turned into wine. He simply said, now take it to the master. And with a beautiful kind of simplicity, water became wine. Now notice it didn't, it didn't become milk or sweet tea or Dr. Pepper or coffee. It became wine. And that transformation, water into wine, that process is something that can happen in nature. In every vineyard, every winery in the world, water is used in some way to make wine. Now, naturally, that progression takes much longer. It's a process of growth and gathering and harvesting and crushing. It, it requires the activity of men and the process of fermentation, but it is a natural process. And that's a subtle yet very important characteristic of the miracles of Jesus. In his book, Miracles, C.S. Lewis points out that every miracle of Jesus is simply a kind of short circuit, circuiting of a natural process, a doing instantly of something which in general takes a longer period of time. This is consistent with what Jesus is doing here with this first miracle. He is, through his power, able to leap over elements like time, growth, harvesting, gathering, crushing, and fermenting. He takes water, which is an inorganic, non-living, commonplace substance, and without a word, without a gesture, without any laying on of hands, in utter simplicity, he turns, transforms water into wine, an organic liquid, a, a, a process of, a product of ferment and fermentation, which typically belongs to the realm of life, something that's living, changing, maturing. If you're taking notes, write this. In this first sign, Jesus took something that was lifeless and he made it come alive. Now, doesn't that just sound like something Jesus would do? This, the first of his signs, the first of his miraculous works performed in simplicity and almost in silence was an indicator of the marvelous power of Jesus the Christ to surpass and to master even the processes of nature. And those attending the wedding, they knew something special had happened. They didn't, know, they didn't fully understand what it was, but they knew something had happened. Look at verse nine. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, didn't call Jesus, didn't call his disciples, called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So those at the wedding feast, they could only speculate why the good wine was served last. And I think it's hilarious. The bridegroom, he wasn't saying anything. He, he was like, yeah, that's, that's what I meant to do. I mean, he, he's not saying anything. He's, he's just taking credit for what happened. But here's the truth. Sometimes 
We are, are kind of like the guests at this wedding feast. We, we pay more attention to the wine rather than focusing on the winemaker. We pay more attention to the blessing than the one who gives the blessing. Okay, Because of their fascination with the wine, the guests of this wedding never considered the one who actually made it, who transformed it into what it was. Fulfilling what Jesus said, if I do this, it will not accomplish what you are hoping. Just as the wine that Jesus made was the best tasting wine. So life in him is so much better than any other kind of life that we can build on our own. But still, so many times, we look to the dead things of this world, the common things of this world, the ordinary things of this world to find some kind of lasting satisfaction or happiness or meaning. Jesus is the only one who can take dead things and make them come alive. The only one who can bring the extraordinary from the ordinary. He did it then and he can still do it today. Amen? Amen. And in verse 11, John reveals the purpose of this sign. What did this mean? Why did he do this? What was the reason behind this? Verse 11, this, the first of, these, of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And so the reason Jesus performed this miracle was to manifest or to make visible his glory. Now, did everyone perceive it? No. As a matter of fact, it seems that most did not. But some did. His disciples saw it. His disciples saw the divine power and John writes, the result was they believed. What did they believe? Did they believe the miracle? Sure, but not just the miracle. They believed in the power behind the miracle. They believed that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the son of God. Remember, this miracle, this sign, it was an indicator of something. Signs are not just the miracles. They, they're, they're miracles that have meaning. They're intended to convey truth that indicates what we are to believe. Jesus transforming water into wine was an indicator of what happens when human effort is empowered and enveloped by divine intervention. In other words, men can fill water jars, but only God can turn water into wine. Men can do the ordinary, the commonplace, the normal, but Jesus is the only one who can transform the ordinary and bring life into something, adding flavor and fragrance and power. And that was the meaning of this sign. It was an indication of the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. It was an indication that whenever we put the full weight of our belief in him, allowing his power to transform our ordinary everyday life into something extraordinary and eternal, he receives the glory. This is a miracle of transformation, a miracle of conversion, a miracle of what can happen in our life when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Here's our last note. 
The power of Jesus to transform water into wine is amazing, but the power to transform a sinner into a saint is even more remarkable. This morning, perhaps you need to know, you need to believe that Jesus can transform you or something in your life. You need to know that if Jesus can transform ordinary water into wine, that he can take an ordinary life that is dead and lifeless and he can bring eternal life into it. He did it in the gospel of John and he can do it in your life today. He can cause you to become a brand new creation in Christ. He can transform your struggles. He can transform your failures. He can transform your hopes, your sinfulness, your brokenness. He's the one that can bring light into that which is dark. He's the one that can bring hope into that which is hopeless. And he's the one that can bring life into what seems lifeless. This morning, if you've come into this place or you're watching online and you're dealing with a situation that feels dark, it feels hopeless, that feels lifeless. There is someone that can bring transformation into your life. Even if the answer is none of the above, the answer that Christ has for you, for your situation, for your life and for your eternity is the answer that brings life that brings light, that brings hope, and brings transformation. So in just a moment, we're going we're to sing a, another worship song.